Let's pray. Father, open our hearts and our minds as we open your book. We would see Jesus and have others see him more clearly because we gather in this place and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul Tripp wrote a book back in 2015 entitled Awe, A-W-E, Why It Matters for Everything We Think, Say, and Do. And in the first chapter, part of it is a bunch of vignettes followed by these words. What do all the people in these vignettes have in common? Awe. They get up every morning and without ever being aware of it, they search constantly for awe. They have dissatisfaction in their souls, an emptiness they long to fill, and they are attracted to awesome things. That's why they go to great museums, stadium concerts, expensive restaurants, and playoff games. The little boy dreaming of Air Jordans is just as much an awe seeker as the successful business magnet. The teenage girl going to prom is as much on a quest for awe as the woman planning the house of her dreams. The athlete who reaches for stardom seeks the same treasure as the man who yearns for the perfect wife and family. It's not about spiritual awareness, interest, or knowledge. It's not first about church, theology, or biblical literacy. It's not even about wanting your little life to mean something. It's something that not only believers do, it's something that every person who has ever taken a breath does. It's not bound by family, culture, history, geography, language, or ethnicity. It's not a matter of age or gender. It's not about any of these things. What all these people share in common is that they are human beings. And because they are human beings, they are hardwired for awe. And so are you. Whether you're following Jesus or beginning to see it might make sense, whether you're having trouble believing or struggling with doubts maybe for the first time, or you feel sure you're never, you'll never believe in Jesus, uh, there are things that you need to ponder in those words from Ted Tripp and even more in the words that we're going to look at from the Apostle Peter. Would you stand if you have uh, a scripture with you or if you don't uh, as we read God's Word? 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19 as we continue in Peter's letter. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. 
For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This, indeed, is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. The context of this paragraph uh, obviously flows out of what came before, and I want to bring to mind chapter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And Peter, in part, is saying in 4-7, with Christ's death, his resurrection, and his ascension into heaven, the last days are here. And that means that the final conflict has begun. doesn't mean the consummation, the making of all things new. That's the end of the new beginning. But the new beginning is upon us, and the Spirit of God is at work to convict men of sin and righteousness and judgment. And there will be conflict. We were created to love good and be drawn to awe and worship. In our rebellion against God, a part of us doesn't want God to be awesome. Because if God is as awesome as He really is, uh, then we can't be as awesome as we sometimes want to be. And yet, of course, the irony is that uh, when we really see the true awesomeness of God, we find out we're more awesome than we could have ever dreamed because of who God made us to be. And yet there's another part of us, even as we run from God, that halfway admits the universe didn't come from nothing, and it and even we can be sort of awesome, which is the beauty and the goodness and so much that we see in one another and others at times that points to great things. Peter proclaims that an awesome God created us and that we're kind of awesome because of that fact. And that's why he encourages believers who are challenged and questioned and even abused by those outside of Christ to treat them with respect and gentleness because it's part of who we are to do that if we're in Christ And it's part of who they are, that they deserve that. Peter in chapter 4 reminds Jesus' followers why the world apart from God's active grace will never embrace Christ. One of the hard things for us, and I think particularly, I won't say particularly, but in our American culture in distinct ways, uh, is we like to think of ourselves as a, a nation and a culture as religious but there's a big difference between religion and Jesus. Since the beginning, uh, people will like all kinds of religions, but Jesus causes trouble. People were very willing to talk to God, but when you talk about Jesus, uh, I remember when I was struggling with things as a teen, uh, really seeing Jesus as who He fully is was a struggle. Uh, I did not want to be seen Uh, with the Youth for Christ Club on my campus and turned down every invitation, even though I was singing worship 
solos at one of the biggest downtown churches uh, at the time. Because we struggle with the realities. I don't know the writer, but these words are full of wisdom. Uh, The way of this world is to praise dead saints and to persecute living ones. We'll put things that we like from the past, even in the Christian religious tradition, and, and honor them. But when the words that are from the Spirit of God that pierce the heart as who Jesus really is come, they shake us up. Uh, Joel Beakey, in his recent book, Encouragement for Today's Pastors from the Words of the Puritans, writes this. So I'm speaking to me and to Steve and the staff, but to each of you and to any other pastor who might listen in especially. Pastors must also realize that the world at large is no friend to gospel ministry. It may seem that way for seasons or moments. He says, a century ago, Christianity was well-respected in our country. Even then, however, the world saved its broadest smiles for a nominal Christianity that did not threaten its idols or interfere with its pleasures. Today, in an increasingly secular, repaganized, and some say post-Christian culture, ministers soon realize that the world's standards of success do not apply to ministry. And as a quick aside, uh, pray for pastors today. Uh, It's not a simple time in the transitions in our culture to manage all the pressures and all the changes. Some things uh, that used to be simply aren't, and so some things that you used to do don't create the same results. That's something to pray for even as we are in this pastoral transition. And that's why Peter wrote 4.12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. If you noticed, I titled this message, Strange Joy. It's about joy, but it seems a strange kind of joy. And our first heading is, suffering isn't strange if you know you're a stranger. I started to say, suffering isn't strange if you know you're strange, but I thought I'd soften it just a little bit. I know I'm strange, but I don't want to be too quick to call you that. But Peter says he's writing to a strange group. They're aliens. They're exiles probably physically exiles, many of them, uh, into Asia Minor, but also spiritually, they're exiles. They bring in a new kingdom, a new culture. They're an outpost. They want to get along with their neighbors and love their neighbors and approve all that they can approve, but they follow King Jesus. And I love it that Peter starts this out, beloved, affection, doctrine and admonition without love is not sound doctrine. Because all good doctrine flows from the goodness of God, the goodness for His glory and for what will bless us. Suffering isn't strange. Uh, With sound minds, sober praying, suffering is no surprise. John Calvin wrote in his commentary, rather than being surprised about suffering, long meditation on the cross should have prepared us. But as Calvin knew and as we know, sometimes we like to focus on a lot of other things 
than the cross and that Jesus himself said, you get your own when you become a Christian. We misuse that word uh, about the crosses we bear in suffering. No, it's the cross that we take up that's like Jesus. His put his to death and ours every morning puts our flesh to death so that we choose to live by the Spirit, that we choose to live for God, we choose to live for neighbors. On the outline, uh, the Scripture references, we're not going to look at all of them or we'd be here forever. I don't want to be there here forever, uh, though I like being here. Uh, but I wanted you to be able to look at them. They point to passages adding to light to Peter's words. But in that first list, John 15, 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. It's not a surprise if we listen to Jesus that there's conflict towards those who really follow Jesus. Fiery trial. These words were on the screen this morning already. I appreciate that. Uh, in this you rejoice, 1 Peter 1, 6, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. And the image in that passage is that of gold and silver, which are tested by fire. The genuine is always tested. Uh, God doesn't need to test you, by the way. Don't fall into that trap of thinking that's the motive. God doesn't need you tested. He already knows what's going on in your heart. He already knows what's going on in your mind. But you do need to be tested to be refined. And we need to be tested so that the world can see the genuine, that we handle suffering and difficulty differently. That's the hope that is within us. Job, Stephen, Paul, all were tested in the Scripture. And we as God's church will be tested. We're in a spiritual battle with eternal consequences. Verse 13, but rejoice with this strange suffering. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Second heading, suffering is sharing in Christ. Koinonia, fellowship in Christ with whom you rejoice. That's the word for sharing here. Sharing of the sufferings of Christ is fellowship, koinonia in the Greek, with Christ. And we share in it uh, in order that in his revealing we may also rejoice with gladness. Acts 5.41, then they left the presence of the council, the apostles in Jerusalem, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Matthew 5.11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who went before you. Insults are signs of blessing. 4.14, you have the spirit of glory in and among you. If you are insulted, 1 Peter 4.14 for the name of Christ, you were blessed because the spirit of glory in God rests upon you. It's an image like the Shekinah glory of God that was with Moses and on the temple. Uh, Ed Clowney writes, suffering then is not a threat but a promise. Uh, and the pattern of Christ's life is the pattern of our lives too. 
And after those lofty thoughts, Peter just throws in this contrasting verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Calvin writes, Peter is here speaking of sins from which we ought to be entirely freed, such as thefts and murders. And I give the second reply that the apostle commands Christians to be the kind of people they ought to be. As to theft, uh, we realize it's the fruit of discontent, uh, the fruit of worldliness, not Christ-centeredness. As to murder, it's the fruit of anger, envy, envy, resentment. And as to the evildoer, evil deeds flow from evil hearts, the very words of Jesus. And then there's this interesting word after those other words that I hope it kind of sticks out to you, like meddlers. What in the world is that doing in this passage? Those other things are big stuff. I mean, what, what's so wrong with meddling? It's an interesting word uh, in, in the Greek. Uh, it's made up of two little Greek words of dealing with uh, other or another's uh, and episkopos. We sort of know that word from episcopal. It's the word for bishop or overseer in the New Testament. And so a meddler is someone who steps into another's oversight, dealing with stuff that is not really his or her business, judging those that are not his or her to judge, and stirring up rancor and trouble in the midst. Um, I find helpful... uh, Paul's comments, this is not on your outline, 1 Corinthians 4, 2 through 5, if you're taking notes, 1 Corinthians 4, 2 through 5. Paul says, moreover, to his critics, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful, but with me it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. Skipping a few words, but I'm not thereby acquitted, Paul says. It's the Lord who judges me who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart, then each one will receive his commendation from God. And and Paul's saying, don't be too quick to judge others. They have a judge. Don't be quick to judge others' motives, even in the church. We run into struggles and we run into divisions when we start judging others' motives. And when they judge our motives, instead of going back to the words from the previous paragraph that we looked at last week of love covering a multitude of sins, believing the best, confronting one another, truthing with one another, but not judging one another as if we are better than others. When we judge others' motives for their actions, presuming they must mean by them what we mean, We can destroy both families and churches. Only God can judge some things. And we think well of one another. We need to humbly share how we tend to respond. I wish I had time to go into this. I don't. Uh, But uh, if you ever catch me saying this, gently grab my shoulder and say, David, you told me to rebuke you. Uh, If you ever hear me saying, if you say something to me that upsets me or bothers me, uh, you made me feel this way. Nobody makes me feel anyway. I choose to respond a certain way. I react out of who I am a certain way. And our tenderness, not judging one another's hearts, ought to be when you act that way, maybe I say to Mary now or her to me, this is how I tend to react. And sometimes it's 
because in her family background, it would mean one thing, but in mine, it means another, and we, we get into all kinds of trouble with one another without the forbearance that goes with that. Proverbs 26, 17, reminding us that God is the judge. Whoever meddles in a quarrel not his own is like one who takes a passing dog by the ears. Love that image. Wild dogs running down the street, and you just want to tug on their ears because they're so cute. Not real smart. 1 Peter 4.16, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. I fear some of the shaming that's going on today is what causes the church to so compromise. Uh, uh, are believers in churches becoming ashamed of virginity? Becoming ashamed of lifelong standards of marital fidelity. We're not willing to delight into them. I love Howard Hendricks, uh, who said years ago, uh, uh, I'm not ashamed to talk about in the church or anywhere else what God shouted from the rooftops. But the beauty and the benefit of God's standards for life, for health, for economics for the blessing of children? Are we becoming ashamed of seeking to do business or to govern with integrity and honesty? Are the shrewd, even if unfaithful, the ones that get all the applause? Have we become ashamed of becoming prosperous by means of hard work to where we have to pretend we're not prosperous? And if we're prosperous, uh, can we openly talk to one another about learning to become generous? Or are we ashamed to, of not being prosperous? Because in some circles, even in the church, uh, you don't have enough faith if you're not prosperous. Nonsense. Don't be controlled by your subculture. Go back and look at what the Scripture has to say. Are we ashamed to have Jesus at the heart of our identity? And disabuse yourself of the idea that if we as Christians are just nice and respectful, respectful and gentle, pagans will like us better. Even respectful, gentle Christians will make pagans with convictions angry. You know, it's hard work. And I use pagan as a good word. A lot of people own it. They may not use that exact language. But if you're a pagan with convictions, you've really got to work at it. You've got to be careful with every story or film. You've got to avoid too much awe at evidence of the Creator and the creation. You can't allow too many hopeful stories or people will think there's something good in the world behind it. You must weaken your conscience so you ignore people's being hurt, even babies and children, in order to affirm, affirm perspectives that don't hurt. I'm being a little sarcastic here, but do you realize how easily we are pulled away from viewing things God's way and start thinking like our neighbors. Respect our neighbors, yes. Be gentle with our neighbors, yes. Love and help. Be generous to our neighbors, yes. An example of how hard mere materialists must work to quiet God's voice. Uh, in a book, Against All Hope, the prison memoirs of Armando Valladares, Vajadaris, rather, a uh, well-known Cuban poet. He writes of his 22 years as prisoner, imprisoned in 1960 by Castro. 
Vyadaris' words uh, regarding his coming to follow the living Christ. Listen. Those cries of the executed patriots in the prison. Long live Christ the King. Down with communism. Had wakened me to a new life. The cries became such a potent and stirring symbol that by 1963, three years after he was imprisoned, the men condemned to death were gagged before being carried down to be shot. The soldiers feared their shouts. Because if you're trying to shout down the truth of Christ, you got to get rid of those words. You got to get rid of that truth. And so Peter says, 417, for it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Suffering reshapes you. Devoted to God who loves you, that kind of suffering for Christ. It's part of our transformation. There's a, a whole plethora of Old Testament language behind what Peter's getting at in that verse and applying in a different way because of the resurrection and justifying death of Christ. Ezekiel 9, and to the others, he said in my hearing, pass through the city and strike and begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the house. Judgment went against Israel first to discipline them as God was dealing with his people. Amos 3.1, hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. Malachi 3.1 through 3, actually I'm just going to read verses 2 and 3. Uh, I cannot help but think of the baritone aria in the Messiah, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, so they will bring offerings in the righteousness of the Lord. Did you notice that change? We're purified that we can bring the right offerings. And that's the way it is with believers. We're not purified to be judged. Christ was judged in our place. But we are purified so that we can presently and in the future bring offerings to God, which is what he deserves. 4.18, and if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Scarcely, scarcely saved. Calvin explains it well. Peter refers to the difficulties of this present life, for our course in the world is like a dangerous sailing between many rocks exposed to many storms. Meantime, it is certain that we are guided by God's hand and that we are in no danger of shipwreck as long as we have him as our pilot. That's why Jesus talks about following him, following the Spirit, following the Word, lifting up one another's weakness so that we choose the narrow gate and the narrow path of Jesus. That's why Jesus says, so everyone who acknowledges me before man, I will acknowledge before my Father is in heaven. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, verse 19, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. The words from Luke, Father, 
Into your hands I commend my spirit. Uh, To a faithful creator, Jesus said, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? If more difficulties come for those who follow Jesus, uh, follow Peter's advice. Don't clamor for your rights. Your privilege is to follow Jesus and to be like Jesus and to be like the apostles and to love your neighbors, not to hate them as if you could politically change them or you into what you need to be or what they need to be. For it's time for the judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator. God can certainly take care of me in my time of suffering for his name, if that comes. Listen in this context to the words from John 3 that uh, we hear some of regularly, but not all. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Think about this reality as we come to a close. We who are trusting in Christ have not yet received the fullness of our salvation, have we? We think about that often. Our adoption, the fullness of our adoption, the resurrection of our bodies. It's also true that those who have not obeyed, not believed the gospel, have not yet received the fullness of their condemnation. The two things go together. In the situation of many who have not yet received the fullness of their condemnation, they need to see our humility, our love, our grace, our embrace of them. But their situation is well described by the man who stumbled out a 20th floor window in a high rise. He dropped past a 12th floor window and someone cried out, How are you doing? And he said, so far, so good. That's not ha-ha funny, is it? Because the world teaches people to laugh and to mock and to avoid. But these are truly matter for tears. And the church has forgotten how to weep. Spurgeon said, don't preach on hell without tears. I think today we just stop preaching on hell. But Jesus didn't. And if we believe the gospel, three verses at the heart of John and the gospel, we see it. Those who preach often sense we're warning folks not to go near the edge of the cliff because they're going to fall off and die. 
And then we watch people even in our own congregations go back to the cliff again and again and do great damage. And we watch others that we love in our families that we preach the gospel to and share the beauty of Christ. The way way to deal with the certainty of God's judgment is not excuses. It's to seek a sound and sober mind and to cry for mercy from the only one who is both willing and able to deliver you. For those of us who love Jesus, we show respect to our neighbors outside the faith. We honor them. We admit they know more about some things than we do. We ask their advice. We respect them. We delight in being fellow human beings with them. We honor their significance as we share the reason for our hope. But our way of loving is to proclaim faithfully that God does not negotiate terms when it comes to the gospel of his son. Do you hear me? The gospel of God, John 3, 16, 17, and 18, and so many other places, is not negotiable. It's not the churches to change or try to take away the sting. The only way to take away the sting of death is Jesus. May we love him enough to risk being shamed. May we be that kind of congregation. So loving and humble and tender but windows to the reality that everybody's human nature, even our own at times, wants to run from. That God is in charge from the beginning to the end, and he sets the frame. Let's pray. Father, your word is so beautiful and so good, and you honor us beyond our expectations but you are so great. Lord Jesus, lift yourself up as both beautiful and shine in our hearts our absolute need of you so that we and others would run to you with delight. Amen.